This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. It is at this time of the year that we love to celebrate um, what our forefathers in the faith achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit and bringing a reformation to our times, a much-needed reformation to our times. And so, it is with uh, great joy and eagerness this morning and this evening For us to look together at Hebrews chapter 13. So I want you to take your Bibles and be turning with me uh, to Hebrews chapter number 13. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Let me read all 19 verses that we're going to look at today, but we're not going to look at all these verses at once. Nevertheless, let me read them to set the context. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good For the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. You know, one of the dangers of celebrating uh, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century is thinking that this was purely a doctrinal or an academic movement, that is, something that took place between the ears and was disconnected from the heart. And it is true that it began in the academy with professors like Martin Luther and John Calvin. It began with an emphasis on doctrine, namely the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It began and it continued with theological tracts and sermons, but it impacted, the Reformation did, more than the classroom. It impacted things like marriage, the family, parenting, education, the arts, architecture, politics, and other cultural and societal categories. At the same time, however, we must, I think, equally recognize that though the Reformation led to big things, think continent-wide and world-changing, it nevertheless began with small, no-name individuals. Exhibit A would be Martin Luther, an obscure monk from Germany. The huge catalyst leading to the Reformation and even the posting of the 95 Theses was something that took place in this obscure monk's heart, and that was a desire to find out through the reading and the study of Scripture to discover that God was worth loving and not hating. Because he discovered the gospel, he discovered the love, the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness 
of God, but he was a nobody during that time. So clearly the Reformation was as much about the heart as it was about the head. It was as much about one's spiritual walk as it was about the so-called Reformation of doctrine and Reformation of the church. And you can even see a picture of this in Calvin's own personal emblem, which is a picture of a hand holding out a heart on fire for God, as if to say, my heart is for you like a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. I say all of that by way of introduction because the book of Hebrews on the surface might lead us to believe that God cares more about doctrine than duty, that God cares more about our heads than our hearts. In fact, if you read the first 11 chapters, which I would encourage you not to do right now, but maybe later, you will see that they are found filled with immense detail concerning doctrinal issues, even specifically so as the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians, and he's attempting to show them one thing, and that is that all the intricacies and symbolism in the Old Covenant pointed simply to one thing, and that is to Jesus Christ, His atonement on the cross, His finished work. But as a result, there aren't in those first 11 chapters, and really not until chapter 12, hardly any practical exhortations, hardly any practical application for the Christian's life. And that is what makes verses 1 through 19 of Hebrews 13 seem like random commands. For example, how exactly does Christ's finished work have anything to do with marriage and how you eat? And what does that have to do with entertaining strangers? Or more particularly... How exactly does the marriage bed, remaining undefiled, have anything to do with obeying and submitting to church leaders? Or, what does the importance of entertaining strangers, who might be angels, have to do with avoiding strange and diverse doctrine? Or, what is the connection between bodies of animals burned outside of the camp and Christians being free from the love of money? All of this seems to be random, doesn't it? All of it seems to be disconnected. All of it seems as if the writer is coming to the end of the epistle and he doesn't have anything to say, and so he just rambles a whole bunch of commands for the congregation to listen to. Think again. If you turn back with me to chapter 12, the answer is found in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, and let our lives be marked by worship, because we serve a God who is consumed with fire. Then he launches into Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, To tell us that by obeying these seemingly disconnected practical exhortations, we are serving Christ Jesus. We are serving the interests of His unshakable kingdom. That it is through the little things in our lives. It is through our relationships, our circumstances, our duties. It is in our home, in our marriage, in our church, on the job site. It is in our hearts and with our hands and by way of our feet that we serve the interests of Christ and His unshakable kingdom that cannot fade away and that is being built in the world today. There was, uh, in times past, a philosopher and historian who wrote these words. He says, To reform a world, to reform a nation, no wise man will undertake. And all but foolish men know that the only solid, though a far slower reformation, is what each begins and perfects on himself. That is to say that any sort of reformation, nobody would try to reform the world or a nation by themselves. Reformation begins in the heart, it begins with individuals, and in fact, I'll just remind you that Luther was not trying to begin a worldwide reformation, he wasn't trying to begin even a continent-wide reformation, Luther was trying to reform his own soul. Luther was fearful of the wrath of God. Luther was fearful that he had not done enough to earn his way into the kingdom of God. And he found out that he was right. He hadn't done enough, but he also found out he was wrong because Christ did it all. 
It was that reformation of his heart, the salvation of his soul, that led to the reformation we know of as the Protestant Reformation. So the question this morning is, what does it mean to journey toward Reformation? Well, certainly it's not by neglecting doctrine. Read Hebrews 1 through 11. But it's also not by neglecting our duty. It's certainly not by neglecting the Word of God, far be it from us. But we also must not neglect other people, serving other people. This begins not just from the Word of God, but a Reformation begins when the Word of God has captured our hearts and conquered our souls so that we can then go into the world with this message of the Gospel. And how does Reformation occur in our own day? Well, it occurs the same way it did in the 16th century. It began with the little things. How much more basic can you get than the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone? I mean, that just flows from our lips so naturally because we cherish it and because we love it. But that is essentially Christianity 101, right? If you don't understand that, you're not a Christian. If you don't understand justification by faith alone, you are not in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Luther not only helped transform what is basic to Christianity, what was basic to the gospel, what was basic to salvation, but he also helped transform the way that Christians and even non-Christians viewed the basics of marriage. Like actually being in love with your spouse, which wasn't a common reality in the Middle Ages. Or the basics of raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord instead of just giving a passing interest to them to raise them up to serve in the same trade as the Father. Or in the basics of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in church because that wasn't just the duty of the choir but of the people of God. Or the basics, if you fast forward a little bit and go into Calvin's era, you understand that in Calvin's era, the concept of democracy, the concept of reformation in politics began in Geneva. So that what was basic to our liberties being created in the image of God, what was basic in understanding the role of government Calvin recovered by saying this whole business of having a king who is a tyrant, who is meshed together with the church in this abusive, authoritative way, that is not the way of the word of God. That is not the way of God's world. We take all of these things for granted, every single one of them. As Reformed Christians, we understand the value of biblical marriage. We understand the value of raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We preach the gospel. We know justification by faith alone, inside and outside. We cannot stand the overreach of government officials, be it kings or presidents or senators or whoever. This is all basic. But in Luther's day, it wasn't basic. What he recovered and what the other reformers recovered was what is basic to us but wasn't basic to them. And the recovery of what was basic, the recovery of the little things, led to a worldwide reformation. And Hebrews 13 helps us with the little things because it reminds us of the basics of serving Christ and the interests of his unshakable kingdom. And it seems like these are unorganized thoughts, but the same methodical organizer of thoughts in Hebrews 1 through 11 is the same author who writes chapter 13. And I think that there is much organization here. You could divide verses 1 through 19 of Hebrews 13 into two basic areas of serving Christ and his kingdom. Area number one is serving the interests of Christ and his kingdom outside of the church. That is your life outside of the four walls of this building. Your life, including your relationships with unbelievers, your life, your witness, your testimony at work, your marriage, the raising of your children. And then the basic area number two is reformation inside the church. We are to reform the little things outside of the church in our own lives. We're to reform the little things inside the church and I think this passage helps us so here's what we're going to do this morning we're going to look at verses one through six and we're going to talk about reformation outside of the church and then tonight we'll talk about reformation inside of the church and bringing these two things together 
dealing with the little things, dealing with the basic things, is a recipe for reformation and revival, not only in your life and in your church and in your family, but in this nation and even in the world, such as the promise of Scripture. So what is the first little thing that we need to do outside of the church? Well, it's found in verses 1 through 3, and it's what I want to call societal investment. Societal investment. A Christian societal investment and impact begins close to home, starting with love toward the family of God. Notice verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. The word brotherly love is the Greek word Philadelphia. It's made up of two Greek words. One phileo, which means tender affection, and the other adelphos, which is the word for brother or near kinsman or one from the same womb. What the author is trying to say is that Christian brothers and sisters are kinsmen through Christ. They come from the same womb, being born again into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the author of Hebrews is just copying off what other writers of Scripture, like Peter and Paul, who use the same word, Philadelphia, to describe the investment of love toward the family of God that He has sovereignly and supernaturally birthed you into. One example would be Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Same word, Philadelphia. Another example would be the apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the idea is that we've been birthed into the family of God. As a matter of fact, all the way back in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews has described the fact and even emphasized the fact that Christians are part of a new family. We're part of a spiritual family. He goes so far as to say in chapter 2 that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. So the idea in verse 1 when he speaks about brotherly love is that the love we've received from our Father through Christ needs to be reinvested into the body of Christ. Let brotherly love continue. And such investment has a direct bearing on the influence of God's kingdom in society. His unshakable kingdom that the author of Hebrews spoke about at the end of chapter 12. And such brotherly love, when shown, yields spiritual increase, not only in your life and in the life of your family, but it also yields a a sort of spiritual strength for the world to see. It helps our testimony, and Jesus spoke about how love impacts our testimony. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. And I want to just say such love, brotherly love, is not fabricated and superficial. It is foundational and natural for the true Christian. What have we been studying in the book of Romans? Romans 5.5, the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart. So there is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables true Christians to be marked not with coldness, but with warmth, not with hatred, but with brotherly love and affection, Philadelphia. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How has God taught you? Romans 5, 5, Through the Holy Spirit, which has been shed abroad in your hearts, ministering to you. And Paul says, you don't even have anyone needing to teach you this. You know this naturally as a Christian. Now, The best way to promote love in the body of Christ, as you can imagine, comes by way of humility, while the best way to prevent love comes by way of pride. Jesus is our example. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He came to this earth, Christ is marked with humility, and that's why Paul in Ephesians 4 says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called by Christ, and He is your brother. You're part of the family of God. So Paul says, Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It seems likely, I think, that there were family feuds and divisions and rivalries 
in the family of God among the Christians who received this epistle that the author of Hebrews writes. Uh, For example, he says in chapter 12, verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He considers peace with everyone as a matter of holiness. And he goes so far as to say, if you don't have peace, you're not marked by holiness and you may, may not see the Lord. You may not know the Lord as your Savior. So verse 1, let brotherly love continue, is an admonition or an exhortation that Christians are to love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they are in covenant with in a local church, but it doesn't end there. I mean, he, he says let brotherly love continue. That includes all brothers and all sisters. And even Paul says this, so then as, a, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's a special love to the household of faith, but really the author is getting at the fact that we are to love everyone. And this obviously results in peace. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I can tell you that the greatest way to destroy both Christian unity and your testimony before the world is to lack love. And the two greatest contributors to a lack of love have to do with self, self self-righteousness and self-pity. Self-righteousness, pride, self-pity, a pitiable spirit, we could say, both focus on self, not on others. And they essentially say, give me, give me. The illustration of this is found in Proverbs 30, verse 15. It's a graphic and grotesque illustration, but it says the leech has two daughters, give, give. So the leech says, give, give, and the leech has two daughters. This repugnant creature with two forks in its tongue sucking blood from its victims. What are the two daughters of the leech? Self-righteousness, we could say, and self-pity. Because a spiritual leech is self-righteous. A spiritual leech has self-pity. It's never content. It sucks everything it can from others. It never gives, it only takes. It sucks time, resources, requests, and demands The spiritual self-loving leech is never satisfied. And later in this passage, he'll speak about the fact that there are those who aren't free from the love of money and they aren't content, they aren't satisfied. But the verse, verse 1, let brotherly love continue, is really assuming the principle of Galatians 6.10. We are to do good to everyone. We are to love everyone, especially to those of the household of faith, but we aren't to neglect those outside of it. In fact, the way the verse reads It reads as if it is meant to be read in passing. Notice it again. Let brotherly love continue. In other words, you're already doing this. Let it continue. But my real point is verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In other words, he's saying while you shouldn't neglect brotherly love, neither should you ignore unbelievers or strangers. And the idea here is that how else can God's kingdom be involved in societal investment if we don't love strangers? We are not just to love the church, we are to love strangers. Jesus said we are not of the world, John 15, 19. But Jesus did not ask that his father take us, his brothers, is what he calls us, out of the world, John 17, 15. And that's why the author of Hebrews says don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This isn't something Christians can neglect because the reality is that societal investment not only involves the world seeing our love for one another, but the world seeing our love for them. So we should not, says the author of Hebrews, neglect to show hospitality to strangers. True love is marked by deeds as well as words. It's demonstrated towards saints as well as towards strangers. And the idea behind this command is that during the period of the Roman Empire, inns, as they were called, or hotels we could call them, were notorious for several things. Number one, they were few in number. Number two, they were dirty. Number three, they were dangerous. Number four, they were expensive. And so the author of Hebrews says to himself, what better opportunity for honest and loving Christians to open their homes to demonstrate love, to demonstrate hospitality to travelers that they do not know. Opening one's heart by opening one's home, providing food and lodging 
in hospitality. That sounds like, to the author of Hebrews, a good societal investment opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is passing through. And that's exactly what he's getting at. And note how Scripture elsewhere not only says that we are to go above and beyond in our love toward fellow believers, but also to our fellow man. I gave you Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, but I can give you another verse. I think it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And it says uh, in verse 5, For you are children of light. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So the love of Christ, the light of Christ, dwells in us. We are to shine that light upon strangers. And later in this passage, he says in verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, and to everyone. And to everyone. Jesus went beyond this. He said in Matthew 5, Love your enemies. Serve your enemies. So verse 2 has to do with unbelievers. The question is, if Christians aren't willing to be hospitable, who is? It's interesting to me. I mean, look at the text. It doesn't say... Do open-air evangelism before strangers. Why? Well, perhaps because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Look at your text. It doesn't say, um, here's an idea, get into an online debate with a stranger. That will really impact the kingdom of God. No. He's saying, show hospitality to your fellow man. Meet him where he is. Meet his needs, whatever those needs may be. Paul said this in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We make the most use of our time when we use our words to preach the gospel and our hands to serve strangers and aliens and travelers, that is unbelievers in the world. And while there may be an application to Christian itinerant preachers in verse 2, there is certainly the application to unbelievers as well. This is not discrimination. Love has no limits. And so broadly speaking, it, it is about our testimony before the world. But he gives us a motivation. Why should we do this? Notice the end of verse 2 He says, for thereby, when you entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So when you serve strangers, some, he says, not all, have entertained angels unawares. That is extremely interesting. I believe that the reference here in verse 2 is primarily to Abraham's experience in the book of Genesis. You go back and read Genesis 18 and Genesis 19, uh, that event really serves as a valuable illustration of how investing in the lives of those outside our Christian circle, those that we don't even know or those we don't know that well or that intimately compared to the family of God, pays dividends in terms of our impact. We won't take the time to go back and look at that illustration. Most of you are familiar with it. But I think the first thing that Abraham's experience teaches us is that we aren't to be motivated about the possibility of angels visiting our tent. As a matter of fact, Abraham was clueless that they were angels. He went to serve. He was oblivious to that reality at the beginning. He was oblivious to it. It involved Abraham serving those who, according to his assumptions, no doubt from Genesis had no clue who they were and what they could give in return. Secondly, Abraham didn't wait to be asked to help. He volunteered. And oftentimes we um, are at our busiest and we are most inconvenienced because when people need something, it's just not the right time. Abraham was a very busy man. He was a man who was wealthy and yet he volunteered his time willingly. Third, I think it's interesting that Abraham involved his family. I mean, he didn't say this, but he said something like this. He ran into the tent and he said, Sarah, quick, we need to make some cakes for these visitors. He included 
his wife. And I would ask you this morning, what are you teaching your children? Not just about the word of God. That goes without saying. What are you teaching your children about your interactions with unbelievers who are lost in the world? When is the last time you invited an unbeliever into your home? When was the last time you opened your arms to serve an unbeliever, a stranger, someone outside your Christian circle? Here's the fourth thing we learned from Abraham's incident, and that was he was not only entertaining um, angels, because Hebrews 13.2 is about him, I think, ultimately, but he was also entertaining the Lord, because we read in Genesis 18 and 19 that two of the visitors were angels. One of the visitors was the Lord himself, because the Lord sees all and the Lord knows all. That should be motivation for us. We don't serve, we don't love to be noticed by others. We do it because we know Jesus is watching. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Abraham was serving the Lord. We serve the Lord when we serve strangers. And the fifth thing is that Abraham saw it as his desire, not simply as his duty. I love the wording of Genesis 18. I believe it is verse 3. It says he ran out of his tent and he bowed before them in humility, asking what he could do to serve them. So I think the example of traveling strangers being ministered to both physically and spiritually really fits with the theme of a societal investment by Christians. We invest in the society, not for society's sake. We invest in unbelievers, not because they are worthy of being loved. Some of them are wretches. All of them are wretches, just like we were wretches before coming to know Christ. But no, we serve strangers in an interest of Christ's unshakable kingdom. And as heralds of the gospel, we tell everyone everywhere. And as we go and tell the good news, they go and tell the good news. And the gospel travels like leaven. So that's the idea here. Love those in the church, love those outside of the church, no matter who's watching, because you may entertain a stranger. More than that, the Lord sees all, and more than that, you're serving the interests of the Lord Christ and His unshakable kingdom by demonstrating to the world the power of the gospel to cause Christians who would rather hang out with other Christians to serve strangers. But what about those who won't come to us or don't come to us? Well, I'm glad you asked because the author of Hebrews says we're to go where they are. Notice verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You see, our love for our fellow man is not merely to be in our homes, it's to flow out of our homes. And so verse 3 says, remember those who are in prison because Quite frankly, if prisoners are not remembered, then they will suffer loneliness and depression. And even in the ancient world, there were not three square meals a day for prisoners. Even the daily necessities like warm clothes and blankets and food. When Paul was in prison, he wanted something warm to cover him. He asked for visitors to come and see him. And he always began his epistles by speaking about those who came to see him in prison. Remember those who are in prison. And in the context, if you go back um, to chapter 10, I believe it is, there were Christians among this congregation or congregations who were suffering. Verse 32 of chapter 10, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. Many Christians were imprisoned for their faith. Perhaps that's what's being alluded to here. In fact, to quote the words of Jesus, he said, I was in prison and you came to visit me. So the same idea is here. When you remember those who are in prison, you are serving Christ. You are visiting Christ. And to remember those in prison, this is not well wishes. This is not some sentiment. This is really a call to action. Again, whether it's Believers, or whether it's unbelievers in mind, it doesn't say. It's speaking about simply those who are in prison. What does Paul say in Colossians 4.18? Remember my chains. 
The idea is to remember those who are suffering. The idea is to not to grow cold in your heart to those who are in need, inside or outside of the church. 1 John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And the author of Hebrews has spoken about the fact that we are to be marked by brotherly affection. He's spoken about the fact that we are to not neglect hospitality to strangers. And now he's saying, remember those who are in prison. What should we do to remember them? Number one, we need to identify with those in need. He says, as those, excuse me, as though in prison with them. That is to say, identify them. Put yourself in their shoes. The Bible says weep with those that weep. That means there is to be this identification with others who are suffering. And with that, there needs to be sympathy. And those who are mistreated, verse 3 says, because you know what it's like to be falsely accused. You know what it's like to suffer as an innocent person. So you want to identify with them. You want to sympathize with them. You see them as one of you. You see them as one who has walked your path and walked in your shoes. And then third, you need to do what you can to help them. Verse 3, since you also are in the body. I think this simply means two things. Number one, you're part of the body of Christ. So if they're a Christian, you're part of them. They're part of you. You need to serve. If they're they're not a Christian, since you also are in the body, has the idea of their body is in prison. It is not free. Your body is not. You are free. You've been liberated. You can serve. You can serve in whatever capacity that may be. It may be physical needs. It may be spiritual needs. It may be financial needs, but you are to do it. In fact, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You want to fulfill the law of Christ, you will bear others' burdens. Now, I suppose you could say that generally speaking, verse 3 is really sort of the golden rule restated to a specific context and practical exhortation. And not neglecting hospitality to strangers and remembering those who are in prison. It's the same thing that Jesus said in principle form in Matthew 7, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. It is the principle of what fulfills the law of God. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 13. And this is a quotation from the Old Testament. In Romans 13 verse 8, Owe no one anything except this, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How? Well, for the commandments say, you shall not commit adultery. So when you do that, you're not loving your spouse or the spouse of the one you commit adultery with. You shall not murder. When you do that, you're not loving the one you've murdered. You're not loving the family of the one you've murdered. You shall not steal because you're stealing from others created in the image of God. You shall not covet because that could lead to stealing. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is really the point of the first three verses. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. And specifically to verse 3, that is prisoners of various kinds. It could literally be those who are prisoners. Around the world there are Christians imprisoned. There is to be sympathy. There is to be a, a... prayer for them. There is to be financial aid to them when you can. What about shut-ins? What about those who can't attend church, older people? But I think you could apply this spiritually. I, I think that it could be applied spiritually to those imprisoned to sin and Satan. That we are to have sympathy for the unsaved who are imprisoned in various sinful lifestyles, be it drugs or homosexuality or an abusive spouse or children exploited and abused. Here's the point. Our societal investment on behalf of Christ's unshakable kingdom does not just speak the gospel coldly. It is followed by warm deeds of sympathy. When we realize that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we have been liberated by the gospel. So how are we helping others escape their suffering and tyranny under Satan? And the Reformation 
And any reformation, if it's real, will not neglect the society at large. Listen to me on this. Reformation cannot occur when Christians are isolationists. That is what the Amish do. That is not what we do. We are to open our homes. We are to open our hearts. We are to open our arms. We are to be investors, not only in our fellow Christians, but also in our fellow mankind. Because when the Bible says, love your neighbor, it includes all people created in the image of God. And the closest neighbor you have is your spouse. And that is why we now come to the second area of reformation. It begins with societal investment looking outside of yourself to serve others, but that's really the goal. It has to begin with how well you do at home. And that takes us to verse number four, what I want to call sexual investment. There's societal investment, and then there's sexual investment. Notice verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Really, the backbone of society is the family. That's the foundation of a godly marriage. Ephesians 5, it pictures the gospel. And we might not view sex as something that is an eternal investment, but that's only because it's been perverted by the world. It's viewed as dirty by the world. And we see the decadence and the perversion of it. But the purpose of sex is God-given. First of all, its purpose involves procreation. Notice the beginning of verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let it be held in honor among all. According to the Bible, marriage is to be held in honor. That means it is only between a man and a woman, not a man and a man, not a woman and a man. I mean, a woman and a woman. Genesis 1, for this reason, a man leaves and clings to his wife, literally cleaves to her. He's glued to her. He's one with her. And God says, be fruitful and multiply. So what does it mean to honor marriage? Well, it means that you honor it as God defines it. And how does God define it? That you are fruitful and multiply. That you understand the purpose is procreation. That is the ultimate goal of all marriage. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Adam knew Eve. She conceived, gave birth to Cain, and Eve said, with the Lord's help, I've had this child. Procreation. That's not just for Christians. Procreation is part of the creation mandate for all people. So to honor marriage means that Christians tell non-Christians what true marriage is. Not what they think that it is. And by the way, for Christian husbands and wives, your goal is not just to procreate, but to procreate godly offspring. Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one, husband and wife, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Malachi says, godly offspring. So to honor marriage is to honor its definition. To honor marriage is to not forbid it or not delay it. 1 Timothy 4, there were those in the church forbidding marriage. In today's society, I call it the new asceticism. It's the idea that you delay marriage until you're older. That's not honoring marriage. We aren't to forbid marriage. We're to encourage marriage. We are to honor it. We're to recognize the husband as the head of the wife. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, wives Be subject to your husband. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because this represents the gospel. Christ has married the church, his bride. It honors the gospel. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is head of the woman. 1 Corinthians 11.3 Women are to submit to their husbands. That is a godly marriage. For this is how Peter says... The holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. That's true beauty. Submission to your husband. And he points to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah obeyed Abraham. 
calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So you honor marriage not only by understanding the roles, but understanding the roles rightly. The husband is not to be some domineering figure who is abusive. He is to lead and to guide and to nourish his wife with the word of God, treating her as the weaker vessel because that's what she is. That is to honor marriage. To honor marriage, notice the text again, let marriage be held in honor among who? Among all. So there will be no reformation if there's only a reformation in marriage in the church. This is to be a reformation in society. Males are to be with females. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Let us not forbid it, let us encourage it. Because procreation is part of that. There's a second purpose to marriage, not only procreation, but also purity. Notice the middle of verse 4. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Biblical marriage both promotes purity and it prevents immorality. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Paul addressed this at length in 1 Corinthians 7, if you just flip over there for a moment. He speaks to this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 2. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Well, that sounds like um, a good solution. You're tempted to sexual immorality. God says, I've got a solution. Get married, stay married, honor the marriage bed. Keep it undefiled. And that's not good enough, by the way, because you may get divorced, biblically, and you may be widowed. So what does he say? Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widowed, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. In other words, it's not a bad thing, it's not a sinful thing, but, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, not they ought to think about getting married. No, he says they should get married. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So one of the purposes of marriage is sexual purity. Sexual purity. And if verse 3 lays out for us, really verses 2 and 3, the principle of loving your neighbor as yourself, then verse 4 here is telling us how we love our neighbor. That's by not committing adultery. Getting married, staying married, honoring marriage by keeping it pure Because marriage is sacred, so the marriage bed is to remain undefiled. Purpose of marriage? Procreation. Purpose of marriage? Purity. What's another purpose of marriage? Well, pleasure. Notice the end of verse 4. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. As a gift from God, and used rightly, marriage results in God's pleasure, not as pain. Pleasure for those who honor it. Pain for those who don't. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 1 Corinthians 6 says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Ephesians 5.5 5 says something very similar. 1 Thessalonians 4.7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The pleasure of God is upon those who are married. That's the intention. Not just procreation, not just purity, but also pleasure. To avoid the pain of God's wrath. The pleasure of companionship as well. Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God has so designed your spouse that she perfectly fits you. Or he perfectly fits you. As ordained by God. And when there's discontent, you don't have a problem with her. You've got a problem with God. And when there's discontent, you don't have a problem with him. You've got a problem with God. Because he has made your spouse the companion of your youth. And we are to take pleasure in that. The Proverbs says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? I mean, it's sort of like Roger Staubach, the famous quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Why would I go out 
and have a hamburger when I can have a steak at home, referring to his wife. Why not feast on what God has blessed you with? This has got to be spoken about in the church. Because the immorality and the unfaithfulness is at a level like I've never seen. It's become a way of life, even for professing Christians. Your spouse is perfect for you because you made vows to God that you would love them and be committed to them. Perfect for you. I saw someone last night that I have weekly interaction with, but this particular individual does not have weekly interaction with my wife. As a matter of fact, this person just met Corey probably a week ago, which I was unaware of. And so this individual came up to me and she said, uh, I finally met your wife. I said, oh, great. And she said, I wanted to ask her so bad. I wanted to ask her, how in the world did she end up with you? And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, well, she's beautiful. And, and I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> there are implications for statements that are made. But of course I know she's beautiful. She was perfectly made for me and me for her. Every marriage is made that way. And there's pleasure in that. And how in the world can the church have an authoritative voice on reforming society if we can't get our own houses in order? You say, well, this seems pretty random. You want me to entertain strangers because they may be an angel. That sounds crazy. You want me to go visit people in prison, try to be everything I can to all people, and you're telling me that if my marriage isn't biblical, then I won't be effective in any of that? Yes, because you'll have no credibility. And that's the point. All of this is connected. And we're not even talking about the church. We're not talking about church government. We're not talking about doctrine. We're not talking about what it means to be a good church member. We're talking about what it means to reform your life to contribute to the unshakable kingdom of Christ. What is necessary for reformation? Well, the little things like societal investment, sexual investment. Number three, what I want to call spiritual investment. Notice verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? Let me put it this way. Our culture can't experience reformation because we are over-individualized. We think too much of ourselves and not of others. And we're over-sexualized. We have sex with the wrong people in the wrong way. Not to be crude. We're over-individualized. We're over-sexualized. And we're over-materialized. We love our toys and we show them off. How does a world... Look at that and say, yeah, the gospel sounds appealing because professing Christians are attracted to all these other things. An insatiable appetite for money. We have it and we're the most discontent in human history. So verse 5 is particularly practical in terms of an exhortation. Keep your life free from the love of money. What is that? Keep your life free from the love of money. That is the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. That is a warning against covetousness. Again, notice the pattern. Verse 4, the marriage bed is to remain undefiled. That's essentially a command not to commit adultery. And now he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Essentially, don't covet. Seventh commandment is don't commit adultery. The eighth commandment is not to steal. The tenth commandment, not to covet. It looks like to me there's organization here around the law of God. As I said, The sexual sins of immoral people in Scripture always includes the ideas of theft and greed. If there is a covetous person who loves stuff and things, they're going to not be satisfied with everything they have, and they're going to be unfaithful to their spouse. Maybe we have time just to read one one verse. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you if I can find it. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Wow. Now, wait a second. I I thought if I associate with those sexually immoral people, I may be influenced by them. Well, you may be if your focus is wrong. If you're not a good witness for the gospel. If you don't have your life together. No, Paul says, 
not at all meaning the sexual and moral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers, then you would have to go out of the world. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. That's how serious covetousness is. Someone who claims to be a Christian and is greedy proves not to be a true Christian. Why? 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And when we keep our lives, if we're able to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, free from the love of money, we are content with what we have. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16. Contentedness is a mark of godliness. And notice your Bibles, the reason given is based on the trustworthy promise of God. You keep your life free from the love of money, and therefore you're content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Very interesting phrase. That's taken from the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, after the death of Moses, and Israel is poised to conquer the promised land. And God tells them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What an encouragement to Christians today because you do realize that the promised land of the Old Testament pointed forward in picture to the unshakable kingdom of Christ. What an encouragement to trust God with our money to invest it in building for the kingdom of God. Why? Because our reigning Lord Jesus Christ has an unshakable kingdom and yet many Christians refuse to tithe. Many Christians refuse to give. They want a nice church building. They want resources for outreach. They want qualified and competent pastors and elders, but they don't want to lift a finger to help. It's not because they can't. It's because they won't. And what is the issue? Well, the issue is greediness. The issue is an interest in hobbies and lifestyle and interests and possessions. And because they're not free from the love of money, they show that their faith is not in God. It's in mammon. And what did Jesus say? One cannot serve God and mammon. Those people show that they don't believe that God will never leave them nor forsake them. The Israelites understood God would never leave them. They gave everything up to conquer the promised land. Christian contentment is found in God and in Christian investment, not in cars and boats and big houses and vacations. Christian contentment sends financial resources to the kingdom of God because it understands that value. And more importantly than that, it's an example of a person that believes God when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's another way of saying, I am here. I am watching. My kingdom is being held together. Do you believe the Old Testament? That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Well, he presses that down even further. Verse 6, he quotes the Old Testament again, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is actually a liturgical or corporate confession taken from Psalm 118. It was used in the synagogue and then it was used in the early church in worship. It's essentially saying, That believers are to have confidence, not cowardice. And it is a a corporate confession for the people of God. Because here's the reality. When we invest in Christ's unshakable kingdom, the world says that's foolish. The world says we're throwing money away. But we understand the secret, right? We are investing in a worldwide takeover to let the world mock, let them shake their heads in disbelief. John Knox said, a man with God is always in the majority. That's verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I can invest in the kingdom of God because it will last. I can give up greediness and covetousness. Verse 5. Because I know He will never leave me nor forsake me. And that's why Scripture is so clear. Don't trust in uncertain riches. Trust in the living God. 1 Timothy 6 says, For the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, Jesus warned one time. He said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That's another way of saying you may think that when you have everything, you have it all. Jesus is saying it matters not how much you have because what you have doesn't define you. God's riches in Christ define who you are. And when you understand that, the greediness goes, you trust he'll never leave you nor forsake you. When you believe that, the Lord is your helper. You will not fear. What can man do to me? Martin Luther, we sung it, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. One of the biggest reasons Christians are deflated and defeated today in the public square The reason they don't have a larger influence on Christian society is because they're selfish with their money. I go back to the Old Testament. I think of Achan, his love of money. That cost Israel a defeated Ai. Not only that, but it cost him his life, the life of his family, the life of his flocks, and thus the life of his legacy. His love for money left him empty-handed in the end. You say, well, yeah, that was the Old Testament. Okay, well, let's talk about the New Testament Ananias and Sapphira struck dead, not because they gave, but because they gave in a deceptive way. They could have given more. They didn't give more. And even more than that, they gave in such a way as if it made it look like they were really contributing to the kingdom of God. How did they die? Empty-handed, like Achan, because of a love for money. Achan, Ananias, Sapphira wanted to keep a little for themselves. No one would know. They weren't spiritual investors. And please don't misunderstand me. Verses 5 and 6 is not a call to poverty. God told Adam to fill the earth and subdue it. Get out of your head the image of Adam just being a gardener. He was that, but he was far more. He was to involve himself in industrialism and business savvy and investment. He wasn't to be reckless with his money, but his money was to be directed for the advancement and the growth of that garden. The extension of it in the world. David says this, who by the way was a rich man. He says, if riches increased, set not your heart on them. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. That is a warning to those who make money. Don't set your heart on that. Christians are to be hard workers. Christians are to be side hustlers. Christians are to be smart financial planners. Christians aren't to give money to Christian organizations that aren't credible, but smart investors invest in the kingdom of God. What is the context? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. He's talked about, look at it again. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Because you belong to God and your worship belongs to Him, you are to invest in the kingdom of God. One writer says, covetousness is born of doubt, contentment is the child of faith. That's exactly right. If you trust God, you give to the interests of his kingdom. One writer says this, and I quote, the appeal for contentment in the New Testament is not intended to convey the idea that ambition of every kind is contrary to God's purpose. Every believer ought to bring his best to his job or profession, recognizing that whatever Uh, whatever he does in life ought to be of such quality that it can be presented as a sacrificial offering to Christ. He does his utmost to be a first-rate worker, but he does not lust fretfully about promotion for its own sake. He is content to leave that in the hands of a providential God who knows what is best for him. Self-regarding ambition can be the most destructive force in the world. Dominated by greed, it pays little attention to the needs of others, the will of God, or even personal health. In a selfishly ambitious society, Christian contentment is a quality of great evangelistic worth because it reminds others that there is more to life than transitory success. I mean, this is basics, right? This is what I talk to couples about before they get married. You need to have a good marriage. You need to be faithful to your spouse. You need to pay your bills. You need to invest. You need to make a hard-earned living. These are the little things. And after speaking about the unshakable kingdom of God, the author of Hebrews doesn't say write a book. He doesn't even say preach a sermon. He says, um, are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? He says, um, do you love unbelievers? Do you remember them? Do you serve them? He says, how's your marriage? 
Are you content with your spouse? He says, um, I see all the possessions you have. Is that what your faith is in? Why does he do this? Because he understands reformation begins in the little thing. The reformation of self. And all of it is quite simple. It's following the law of God. Not committing adultery. Not stealing. Not coveting. And by the way, following God's law is like following God's instruction manual on the way the world he built and the kingdom he established functions. So do it God's way. By social investment. Look to impact others around you. Don't live for self. Preach the gospel. Live the gospel. Secondly, sexual investment. Don't defile the institution of marriage by allowing others to define it or redefine it. Take a spouse. Love your spouse. Honor the marriage bed because it pictures the gospel. It's the mystery Paul speaks about in Ephesians 5. And number three, spiritual investment. Use your money for your needs. Use the rest of your money for kingdom interests. These are all things that we do outside of the church. And when we reform these things in our lives, then we can have other discussions about big steps to take. I mean, it amazes me. It amazes me. Changing the little things about your life is more impactful than some podcast. It's more impactful than a YouTube channel. It's more impactful than writing a book. It's more impactful than some silly Facebook post or X post. Those are all the things that superficial people invest in to get a name for themselves. When you research their lives, you see they're not being faithful in the little things. You're not faithful in the little things. Then when the big day of judgment comes, it is a fearful thing because this God of an unshakable kingdom is a consuming fire and he sees all. So may we live as if he sees how we live, not inside the church, outside of the church. What do your unbelieving neighbors say about you? What do they know about you? How have you served them? Because if, if outside of the church there's no ministry, then whatever ministry inside of the church exists is a farce. However, we reform our lives outside of the church, but we also must have a reformation in the church. And in verses 7 through 19, if you come back tonight, you'll see how we can reform the church in the little things to the glory of God. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.